welcome to New Idea Life, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. And today, with Onkar, we will be discussing the libertarian movement. And there are two reasons for this. First, there have been some interesting developments going on on the libertarian movement. There are some things that maybe you have missed them, and there are things that are quite interesting to discuss. But the second reason is that quite often we, objectivists, we face the criticism that says, you're a bit too strict with libertarians. Why don't you cut them some slack? Why don't you see that we're all on the same team? They defend liberty, you defend liberty, so why can't you just get along better with libertarians? And let me tell you something. In my first move, in my first months, even in my first years as a student of objectivism, I could not understand why objectivists and Ayn Rand herself were so intellectually hostile quite often to libertarians. I remember reading in this book, The Voice of Reason, an essay by Peter Schwartz called Libertarianism, the Perversion of Liberty. And I was, all, I was almost offended, a perversion of liberty. Why? Well, we will see today the why. So let us see what's been going on in the libertarian movement. I'm going to show you some examples of the things that have been going on in the last 12 months approximately, and I will let you draw the conclusion. So here we see the official account of the Libertarian Party telling us, your enemy is not in Russia, but at home. So our enemy is the political class of the US. But that's not all. We also see the Libertarian Party of Georgia telling us Taiwan is part of China. So why is it that supposedly a political party which stands for freedom adopting the position of the Communist Party of China? But there's more. We see the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire, which is some of the most uh, vocal voices of this new wave in the libertarian movement, which will ex ex uh, we will explain what's been going on. We hear them saying that Lincoln killed way more Americans than Osama bin Laden, and Osama had better reasons. So Lincoln, the guy who liberated slaves, Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden is the lesser of two evils, apparently. But we've got more. We see again the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire. Here you've got Zelensky, a guy who tries to defend his country. Here you've got Hitler, no further comments needed. They're the same picture, we've been told. What else have we got? Again, Libertarian Party of New Hampshire. Zelensky is a bigger threat to humanity than Putin. So you have Putin who has attacked a foreign country. You have an aggressor who actually every other day makes hints about nuclear weapons. But guess who is the biggest threat? The bigger threat is Zelensky, we are told about from libertarians. But there's more. Here is one of the few tweets that the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire deleted because apparently the anti-Semitic uh, hint was uh, too much. But you see how they view the world. There's dirty money, dirty politics, and supporting Ukraine is part of this scheme of that conspiracy. Let's go on. And the official account of the Libertarian Party, again, supporting Zelensky and applauding him and holding a Ukrainian uh, flag in the Congress is treason. 
and let's a couple of more. Here we see Daniel McAdams, who is the director of the Ron Paul Institute. So the director of Ron Paul Institute comments on a meme libertarian page, which says I'm on Russia's side, saying, who isn't? Neocons and thugs. So unless you're a neocon and a thug, you should be on Russia's side. And why we should be on Russia's side? Again, let's see the next tweet. Uh, the director of Ron Paul Institute explains. And he says, do you want your kids to be forced to go to drag queen shows? And, or do you want to live in a country where it is illegal for adults to sexually attack your children? I'm with Russia, 100%. Let the quote libertarians lose their seat over this. I'm with Putin. So ladies and gentlemen, the characteristic of Putin and the characteristic of Russia, according to the director of the Ron Paul Institute, is that Russia is the country where it is illegal for adults to sexually attack children, whereas apparently in other countries it's not illegal, and this is the characteristic of Russia. So Onkar, you see all this, and one could say, well, this is just, you know, kids playing with the social media accounts, but is there something more there? Is there something more serious going on here? There is something more serious, and the fact that it's being discussed in the libertarian uh, circles, there's this guy, are we really now on the side of Putin, and how can this be, and how do we think about the Ron Paul, and you're bringing up the New Hampshire party, but the, the central, the federal parties, it's, if it was just a few kids and so on, there wouldn't be this kind of internal discussion and worry about how can we be champions of this and from the perspective of if you're truly on the side of liberty and freedom then it does seem a no-brainer that you would be on the side of taiwan not communist china you'd be whatever the problems in ukraine comparatively speaking to russia it's a freer place you would be on the side of ukraine and against russia and if you think of it from the point of view of America, whatever the problems with the American government, um, and it's it's not like we don't have criticism, that is we here at ARI and, and um, Ayn Rand didn't have criticisms of American policy, domestic and foreign. But if you're thinking of it from the perspective of freedom, the who has lived more free than Americans under the American government for the last two centuries? So if your perspective was freedom and freedom for the individual to live, whatever the problems of the Taiwan government or the Ukraine government or the American government, you would see from a historical perspective, this is a relatively free place. And in, in terms of America, the leading voice for freedom in the world, and you would be on their side, whatever their problems. So what it should do when you see this kind of thing, you should think, well, maybe they're not on the side of liberty. And that then might explain the, what seems unexplainable. And I think that in the end is the right analysis that if you're anti-state, not pro-freedom, then um, what you will be about is about seeing states torn down. That is governments, you know, I don't mean state as in like the 50 states of the US, the governments, the nation state torn down 
and particularly the best exemplars of it, if you're hostile to that very idea that there should not be nation states, that, that the state as such is evil, and indeed, if you think of it, I mean, evil means an abomination, then you want to see that eliminated. You cheer when it's eliminated, and you're going to be animated by the best examples of it. Like, that's what I want to see go down, not corrupt regimes and so on. And I think that in the end that there has been since the 70s a real element of people who will be seen as part of the libertarian movement, that they're anti the U.S. government. I think there's a definite reason for that. But what you have to question is, are they doing it because they're pro-liberty or are they doing it because they're not actually pro-liberty? So what you're saying is that one could be anti-state, but not pro-liberty. So first of all, let me clarify something here. We are talking about a particular type of libertarians. We will refer later also to the better libertarians, but you will notice that here we talk about people who are close to what used to be their own poll movement. The people who took over the libertarian party at 2022 is the Mises Caucus. So to put it simply, these are people who most of them would identify as Rothbardians, followers of Murray Rothbards, uh, in some ways the builder of the modern libertarian movement, particularly of that angle. So what did Rothbard do? He put together elements of the old right, of the what he called the isolationist right, of the anarchist tradition, and he merged it with Austrian economics and he created this uh, weird, uh, this weird mix. So also we would have more things to say, not only about foreign policy, because you will notice if you follow them on social media, that, for example, the head of the Libertarian uh, Party's committee, Angela McArdle, although she has blocked me on Twitter, but every other day, she, she, you will see tweets that are very weird. The other day she had the tweet against vaccines, not against COVID vaccines, against vaccines in general. Or she was, uh, she was on, on a famous, uh, on, a, on, a, on a podcast, and she talked about the science of medicine overall as being suspicious. So there's a lot going on in the libertarian movement. But let us talk a bit about what is the view of libertarians on foreign policy. And again, let's go back to the source. Let's go back to Murray Rothbard. So a very short historical context here is interesting. So in the mid-60s, Rothbard found himself being kicked out of uh, the what we would call the circle of Ayn Rand, because for a short period, years earlier, he was part of the people around Ayn Rand. But also he's been kicked out of the conventional right, of the, of the conventional, so to speak, conservative movement, which was not of his taste because he found it too bellicose, too, too, war, uh, uh, too, too, too excited about the, um, the war in Vietnam. So he looks around for allies. And what are the allies he finds? The new left. Why the new left? Because the new left was against, quote, the man. The new left was against the so-called military-industrial complex. The new left, at the end of the day, was against whatever it would see as examples of the state, the university, uh, the, the culture. And because Rothbard was also anti-state, he finds himself in this coalition with the new left. And this coalition led him to very weird uh, avenues. For example, it led him to create a journal which was called 
left and uh, left and right or something like uh, something like that, in which he wrote a eulogy in which he wrote something some something very praising when Che Guevara died. Who was Che Guevara? The communist guerrilla. But his point was guerrilla warfare is good. Why? Because guerrilla warfare goes against the states, and the state is the number one opponent. The state, and most particularly, the American state. So he finishes this article with a long quote by none other than Fidel Castro. And then Murray Rothbard also comes into an alliance with some Maoists, with a group called Progressive Labour. Why? Again, they were against American imperialism. And for Rothbard, American imperialism was the biggest threat in the world. So within that context, Rothbard gives the main frame of a libertarian foreign policy. Neutrality, isolationism, non-peaceful uh, coexistence. And my question to you, Onkar, is this. This sounds good things. Neutrality sounds good in terms of we don't want to mess with other people. Peaceful coexistence, who wants war? And isolationism, America first. One could say, isn't this also what Ayn Rand would say? America first. So what is wrong? What is wrong with the libertarian view of foreign policy as expressed by Rothbard around that time of his life? Well, you touched on it on some of the examples that you were bringing up. If those are your bedfellows, Che Guevara and Maoists and so on, you should, and any outsider should think, okay, maybe there's something really going wrong here and there's more to it than what is just being said. So some of the things that what you said, isolationism, neutrality will be brought up, but the more fundamental, particularly for foreign policy, is it's anti-state and anti-government, a government as such, regardless of its nature of what it does, that's problematic. And that, so you're citing- And we have a quote about that. Uh, yeah, that's right. And we can put up some of the, the, and this is, I think it's important also to get from Murray Rothbard, what he's doing. So you say he's being kicked out of various, um, groups. He's at this point, and when he's writing for a new Liberty in the early seventies, uh, but what he's doing, I think in the sixties and into the seventies, he's trying to become the spokesman for a libertarian movement and part of what he's doing in uh, for a new liberty is this is what we all maintain. This is what we hold. These are our principles and viewpoints. And he's, in a way, I think he's trying to co-opt everybody who's um, thinks of themselves. I'm on the side of liberty. I don't agree certainly with the liberals today. I don't agree with the conservatives. I, I want something and I view myself as something different than that. Rothbard's trying to say, well, I'm your spokesman. I'm the spokesman for all these people. And part of that, Ayn Rand became increasingly openly, you put it as hostile. And I think if you, what you can look in, for instance, the Ayn Rand Q&A of when she's asked at various talks, what does she think about the libertarians? It grows increasingly as you go through the 70s increasingly deprecating and I want nothing to do with these. Don't confuse my views and objectivism as though we're fellow travelers or something like that. I she, So she's really repudiating them. 
And I think if you understand that part of what's happening is Rothbard's presenting himself as the spokesman for everybody, and if you understand how vile Rothbard's views are, that there should have been a lot more people than Ayn Rand distancing themselves from this and saying, like, I have nothing to do with this. Don't think there's anything fundamentally in common between what I say on the side of rights, capitalism, freedom, and what Maury Rothbard is saying. So on, this, on the issue of foreign policy, what's really animating it is to side with anybody in anything that seems to have the power to tear down states. And as you said, with a central and the preeminent target, the United States of America, that's the worst form of government. That's the state we have to get rid of. Um, and the, the issues of neutrality and isolationism are in the end, I think, red herrings in regard to this view. So neutrality can mean that um, you're trying to avoid getting involved in conflicts for which your interests are not at stake. And so the, from early on of the founding of America, it was, and it goes with the isolationism, is like we're going to keep out of these quarrels, quarrels of states in Europe and so on, of which the um, interests of America are not involved. That doesn't mean being neutral between good and evil. Um, it means that if we only get involved militarily when our actual interests are at stake, and far from being neutral, you have to very carefully figure out who are friends, who are enemies, who are potential enemies, that they might not be a threat now, but could develop into a threat, and how do you counteract that and so on. So the, the idea that it's, it's the way to think about it, this in any fundamental terms is you're neutral. Like these states that are neutral um, in the U UN between Soviet Russia and the United States, those are abominations that if like, I can't see a difference between these two states that are equally good or equally bad to me. Um, and isolationism just means get involved when your interests are at stake, don't get involved when they are not. So Ayn Rand, I mean, World War I, for instance, um, there were isolationists, and I think of which Ayn Rand viewed herself as one, is it's like, this is not our fight. Our interests are not at stake. We should not be sending uh, thousands and hundreds of thousands of American soldiers over to fight and die when it's, they're not protecting the United States. That's different than thinking um, that there is something corrupt about a state as such or a government as such. And that really is what is animating, I think, Rothbard's foreign policy and what he's trying to set as the foreign policy if you're a true libertarian. Right. And to put it in today's context, and we're going to discuss Ukraine in a bit, but just a preliminary comment. I'm very happy to discuss with someone who believes we shouldn't help we shouldn't send any help to Ukraine. We shouldn't get involved. I, I, I can discuss this. But first, that person needs to make the moral argument. Who are the good guys here and who are the bad guys? Because you have an aggressor and you have someone who fights for what they see as their freedom. So it's completely different discussion. Your moral take on the case and then neutrality, neutral, quote, neutrality in terms of are we non-intervention. These are two different things. And notice here, they're not saying we shouldn't support Ukraine, but hey, how horrible it is. They say, yay for Putin, 
Or they're saying Zelensky is the biggest threat and he's like Hitler. So here you, ha- you don't have moral neutrality. You have actual taking the moral stance of Putin. But let's get back to Rothbard. So we talked about peaceful coexistence. And Rothbard looks around in the world and says, can I view any country that comes closest to my view of peaceful coexistence? And people, what country does he find? The Soviet Union. Yes, that's true. He looks around and says, Lenin Soviet Union is the closest to what I have in my mind as peaceful coexistence. Quote from a new liberty. Lenin and his fellow Bolsheviks adopted the theory of peaceful coexistence as the basic foreign policy for a communist state. Stalin and his successors strengthened (laughs) and reinforced the non-aggressive peaceful coexistence policy. He writes this in 1973. By that time, we know that the Bolsheviks attacked the Baltic countries, Poland, in the first years after the revolution. Then Poland again in 1939, Finland again in 1939. And after the Second World War, they, the Red Army officially occupies half of Europe. This is Rothbard's peaceful coexistence. And by the way, the only reason that Soviet Union was not part of the Axis is because Hitler didn't agree to Stalin's claim about the Balkans and more specifically Bulgaria and Romania. Otherwise, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact would have led eventually within some months Soviet Union being officially part of the Axis. And this is the country that Rothbard sees and says This is my example of peaceful coexistence. So it looks like, Onkar, that there is some precedence there in saying who is the biggest enemy of the country I hate, which is the United States for Rothbard. These are the good guys. Because it takes such a cognitive dissonance to see Soviet Union, and again at a time where the Red Army occupies half of Europe. This is only four years after the tanks were rolling into Prague. This is less than 20 years after the Soviet tanks shed all that blood in Hungary. But for Rothbard, these are defensive moods because he's telling us the same thing that, use, that the useful idiots for Putin are telling us today. That Russia, and back then Soviet Union, need some defensive uh, Lebensraum, basically. They need some buffer for its defense because otherwise it feels vulnerable. So how can he have such a cognitive dissonance? Well, you can't, I think. So it, that's why you need another explanation. You, you need it. And he's giving you the explanation in this book. You just have to be willing to confront it and to face it. That the, nobody can look at Soviet Russia and think there's anything good about it. There's anything to model on in regard to Soviet Russia, in regard to its domestic policies or its foreign policy. And the fact that it's, and you get some hand-waving in the book. I'm not saying that I'm on the side of Soviet Russia and that what I think that, that it's good, and I don't think that there's a tyranny here and so on. But the fact is it doesn't bother him. It and it doesn't that that well, but I'm still holding up Soviet Russia as it's more a model than the United States. The United States is, in terms of foreign policy, 
completely corrupt and aggressor, imperialistic. Soviet Russia isn't, um, comparatively speaking. I mean, that's part of what he's trying to argue. And if you're trying to argue that, I mean, nobody can take that seriously. But if you think of it as, well, but my target is the state. What I want to tear down is the state. And, 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 and it's even deeper than that, I think, what it is that he's trying to tear down. But at least when we're talking about foreign policy, it's the state is the enemy. And um, then it, th this issue that I brought up earlier, that it's, if you're trying to dislodge in people's minds, but, well, but I think government is good. And I think we need a government. And I'd rather live in a place, even that it's, if I don't think it's governed perfectly, and I don't think the United States is governed perfectly, but I'd rather live in the United States or Taiwan than in Soviet Russia. And that's a completely rational and indeed in a certain kind of sense, it's a common sense perspective. I mean, if you think of people voting with their feet, yeah, the, the reason you had to build walls around the, I mean, the Iron Curtain is because people want to leave then come to the U.S. or come to Taiwan. And so on. So you have to lock them into these places. So people know this and he's trying to convince people, yeah, but you're wrong about this. So your whole target has to be, yeah, America's not as good as you think it is. Indeed, it's radically evil. And we, that's why we should get rid of it. And so the evils in the Soviet Union, so that's not what occupies his mind. The whole thing is take what people think is the best state, the best government, and paint it as evil. And if I can do that to, in people's minds, then they might be on board with my idea of te tearing down every state and every government. And I think that's what explains his animus towards the United States and his, he, it's not that he thinks Soviet Russia's Shangri-La, but he doesn't care. That's what you get. It's a profound amoral attitude that you get in for the new liberty. He doesn't care about the millions of deaths in Soviet Russia. Right. And we could say that most of his claims never reached any popularity. But there's one claim that we could even say it's almost mainstream today. Didn't, of course, it didn't start with Rothbard, but Rothbard serves it. And this is his theory of just war. So what is a proper way to conduct warfare according to the libertarian doctrine? And if our producer can give us uh, the quote with uh, Jones and Smith, uh, we, can, we can discuss this because it's a very interesting point. So he talks about, uh, he talks about how two people deal with each other if one's rights are violated. So he says, if Jones finds that his property is being stolen by Smith, he has the right to repel him and try to catch him. But he has no right to repel him by bombing a building and murdering innocent people or to catch him spraying machine gun fire into an innocent crowd. If he does this, he's as much or more of a criminal aggressor as Smith is. Now, let us see how this translates to warfare between states. Let's go back to Rothbard. This is from his essay, War, Peace, and the state in egalitarianism as a revolt against nature. So let's go back to his quote. 
War is the outbreak of open violence between people or groups of people. War then is only proper when the exercise of violence is rigorously limited to the individual criminals. What does this mean in practice? End quote. What does this mean in practice? It means, for example, that if we want to fight Iran, we should only, only target the revolutionary guards, for example. Or, to bring it to the example of the Second World War, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were war crimes. Why? Because they targeted people who were not the wrongdoers, who were not the Japanese government or even the Imperial Japanese army. So, Onkar, what do we think about that? Uh, if I follow someone who has stolen something, I start uh, bombing random people to catch him, I'm doing something wrong. So, wouldn't the same apply between in a war between nations? No, it drops the whole context. And this is, if you read Rothbard, he's an expert at dropping context. The, the idea that you can draw a parallel between a police force in a civilized um, freedom, at least oriented towards freedom, a government. So if we think of the Western world, you don't have to only think of the US, Canada, Germany, UK, Greece, and so on. The, the police exist to uphold everybody's rights, to protect everybody's rights of the people living in the jurisdiction of this government. And in that sense, it can't just, well, okay, somebody's committed a crime and now I'm just opening fire and so it's, but, and you are violating the rights of the other citizens. That's why there's a whole processes by which governments and police forces, how they can use force, what kind of evidence. And they have like at the level of police chases and so on, sometimes they have to break off the chase because it's becoming too dangerous and they're just endangering people on the highway and so on. And if they can follow with a helicopter or something, the person, they, they, there's all kinds of procedures about the proper objective use of force. But this is when you have a monopoly on force and you have police and so on. When you're at war, when a country is at war, the context is radically different than that. It's not just some individual citizens who may have committed a crime. You have whole groups of people who are out to destroy you as a nation. That is to remove your form of government and institute whatever they think will be um, the governing. And in that context, what the, the, your use of force and self-defense looks like is very different than a police chasing a few criminals. And it's true that you do not, there, like there's no reason, and there's plenty of reason not to, just willy-nilly kill civilians in a country that you're at war with. So you brought up Japan in World War II, or you could think of Germany in World War II. That, and then, so don't, because the, the issue of the nuclear bomb brings up certain things. But if you think of the, the firebombing of, of cities in Germany, uh, of Dresden and so on, the, the people view that also as war crimes. And they're, like, you're not willy-nilly just destroying civilians, particularly if you think they're innocent or potentially on your side. But on the other hand, you have to destroy the power 
of this group and here if it's a nation state but it can be some kind of um it doesn't have to be a nation state it can be like isis uh for instance um but you have to destroy their power to be able to attack you if you're and to be able to do that often will mean bombing economic centers in which you know civilians and even you know civilians who are innocent will be killed but it's necessary to do so in self-defense and it's proper to do so and i would add that people in those countries if they're truly innocent will understand that it's necessary for you to do that in self-defense and i would go further of when the like, evidence that they're innocent is they're part of a rebellion or they're part of an underground like the french resistance and the idea that the french resistance was oh no the allies should not bomb france because you might hit some innocent civilian or you might hit us no they were cooperating with the allies that you should be bombing france hopefully you can help liberate france that's what we're working for and towards so, so the whole thing is a fantasy of um not understanding really what war is and it war is not a police action it's nothing like it it's it's the worst thing that can happen and this is true like any government that is pro freedom does not want to enter into war but sometimes it is necessary it's necessary in self defense you don't fight wars of aggression of conquest and so on but you have to be re ready to fight wars of self defense and if you have this kind of self crippling policy that well i can only bomb card carrying nazis but i can't hit any civilian and so on you will be wiped off the face of the earth um and it and it you have the moral right to engage in that kind of self defense right I, i'll just let me add one other thing that, which is it's not true for many of these cases that the civilians are all innocent so the idea that everybody is innocent in germany apart from some of the leadership of the nazis or something i think that is crazy you, they had so much civilian support and if the civilians cannot see well like i'm electing hitler part of his program is to wipe out the jews and so i didn't see it coming to world war 2 and so yeah maybe they didn't see it it doesn't make them innocent of what happened right there's so much to discuss here but time is of essence so let's yeah. let's yeah, move so for example we'll have to skip this very interesting point by rothbard that the united states should unilaterally throw away their nukes so let soviet union have nukes but at the same time he believes that individuals would be okay to have nukes so let's leave this uh, this piece of wisdom and let's go to because we have to be very fair here let's address the three main arguments of libertarianism and let's see if there's any merit in it so here's the first argument onkar when it comes to foreign policy so they would say Why is it so weird when Rothbard says that the United States is the number one threat uh, for world peace, since every statistic shows that the United States has been involved in the biggest foreign interventions in the 20th century, or since the 1950s, or since the end of the world of the Cold War? However, you want to see it, they will say United States has intervened 
in Iran, in Greece, Chile. They will bring many, many examples. And indeed, there has been some sort of political or military intervention or a combination of the two. Is there a merit then to the argument that the United States is indeed the biggest danger the world faces? No. The, so it is true and it is um, a problem in American foreign policy that since World War II, but even before you can view its entries into World War I and World War II, the most um, kind of benign explanation for the entries into it is that we have to be the world's policemen and that we're, we have to help these places out. We have to bail out Europe. There, it's enmeshed in a war. If you think of World War I, of, of, a, of a particularly senseless war, of this trench warfare that's advancing nowhere. And it's um, these people can't live in peace. We need to intervene and set things straight. And the same in, in World War II that Europe is being torn up. It, it has appeased Hitler. It has seen the rise of communism. Its intellectuals have supported this rise. You have these two totalitarian states now, and now they're ravaging Europe. And then the US enters to help out the UK and help out the allies and, so, and eventually win the war. There's an argument, and certainly Ayn Rand had this view, even of World War II, that sometimes shocks people, that America should not have entered but her view is it should not have entered because we had no interest at stake. We should have armed, but we should have let Europe fight their own war. And it eventually would have been, her view was the UK and, and Nazi Germany, I'm sorry, Russia and Nazi Germany fighting each other um, and two tyrants sort of destroying each other. And uh, we should arm against them, but we should not bail out Europe. So her view was, it's because we have this whole altruist perspective. We have to be the world's policemen. We have to help everybody. They can't look after themselves. That there's been a lot of US intervention across the world. But the idea that this has tyrannized people, it's been bad, I think, for America. And it's been self-sacrificial on America's part. But the idea that Europe is worse off because America entered World War I and World War II, or Japan is worse off. Um, or, I mean, you can think of broadly of Asia, that it's worse off that it entered. I mean, if, if anybody knows anything about the Japanese occupation of these places, the idea that, oh, America entering, and now, now you're really oppressed, that is just so monstrously unjust to say that, that it's, it hardly warrants discussion. Um, so there has been American intervention, but the idea that this is intervention in the name of tyranny, it's self-sacrifice. And that has been bad for America, but for many places in the world, and, and Europe was like this after World War II, they were so grateful for America's intervention. Of course, there have been cases where the, uh, the United States uh, are bedfellows with horrible regimes. Pinochet is an example. The Indonesian regime is an example. Greece is an Stalin example. Is an example. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, officially sanctioning these regimes. But here's also the thing. Yeah. Let's take the war with Vietnam. It's one thing of saying 
and Iran actually was in this way against the war in Vietnam. It's one thing saying America should not be in Vietnam. And it's another thing of waving the flags of North Vietnam. It's another thing telling that Vietnam is better off now that Saigon has fell, which was Rothbard's view. So it's not only that you are against U.S. intervention, it's also why you are against U.S. intervention and who do, who do you, what do you stand for? So do you stand for, oh, the government fell, the next five minutes is going to be freedom till Ho Chi Minh and his dictatorship also expands in the South? Or are you against intervention on principles that is based on the self-interest of your country? So let's now deal with another also very prominent point of view in libertarianism. We also saw it in the tweets. So they would say, look, Ongar, Putin is never going to oppress me. Putin is never going to tax me. Putin is never going to regulate me. Putin did not put me into lockdown. So my biggest enemy is the government that taxes me, the government that regulates me, the government that puts me into lockdown. Therefore, objectively, libertarians would say, Joe Biden, the Congress, the U.S. government is a bigger threat and the biggest enemy. And I will never have to worry about Putin, but I do have to worry about the tax collector and the IRS. What's your take that's, on that? That's false, though there's a grain of something that you can view as true, but it's essentially false and it's corrupt. And if you go back to what you brought up at the outset and, and some of the examples that you brought up, and, and I think partly like you've seen these examples and they bother you and that it's right that they bother you. And, it, and, and as we were saying, they bother people who identify as libertarians, that they're really they're, there's libertarians, like supposedly I have something in common with people who are doing this. And notice that there's no cost involved in morally supporting Ukraine. So it's a different issue of should we be sending arms there? Should we get involved? Should there be troops? And so that is in terms of foreign policy, there's real questions about that. And I think our whole foreign policy in regard to Ukraine has been um, hopeless. And more broadly, U.S. foreign policy has been hopeless in all kinds of ways. We've talked, we have previous podcasts on that. We talked about when the invasion of Ukraine, I was on a podcast where we talked about that. We've talked about the response to 9-11. So, so there's particulars about U.S. foreign policy. Yes, there is a lot to criticize, but it costs nothing to support Ukraine versus Russia. And again, what we said at the outset, anybody who's on the side of freedom should be able to see that comparatively speaking, Ukraine is better than Russia or Taiwan is better than China. And so if you're supporting China, the Taiwan is a part of China. And so that's not an issue about, oh, but the real problem is the American government and Biden. And so that's supporting thugs and not supporting people who are comparatively speaking, way more on the side of freedom. And you, you can't excuse that by reference to American government or But then it is, so the kernel of truth is, one should worry most about the actions of one's own government. That's what one has and in any semi-free society, that's one what has some influence over, this is where you live, you should be concerned with it. 
but the, to say that the um, the kind of projection that, oh, we had lockdowns and look at what the American government has done. It remains the case that you would rather, if you're on the side of you want to live in freedom, you would rather live in the United States than in Russia, or you'd rather live in the United States than China. And you cannot ever forget that, that if all you can see is the things that the U.S. government does that are bad, and you can't see the hundreds of things that they do that make it possible that you live in comparative freedom. And if you think historically, you live in, anybody living in the United States today lives in comparative freedom. If you look over the last 2000 years of history or so, of, of recorded history. So there are things to criticize about it, but if all you see is the negatives, then you're not actually thinking about it. But again, if you view the state as such, as corrupt and evil, then everything it does is bad. And your view of the utopia is there would be no state. But the, no state, uh, to live in a state of anarchy, there have been many places in the world that have been in states of anarchy, and nobody wants to live in those places. So if you can't see um, that even though we don't enjoy full freedom, we still enjoy numerous freedoms in the Western world, and that's to be cherished. And the criticisms of government are from that perspective, that you should be more doing the things that are pro-freedom and less the things that are anti-freedom. That has to be your perspective, not a perspective that the state as such is a tyrant. Right. So to... Wrap up, I want to ask you the last question, which is the million dollar question. So are these views in libertarianism a feature or a bug? So is there something in this loose umbrella, which is libertarians? Because we have to say Rothbard is only one part of the libertarian movement. For example, Mises, from which Mises Kakus and the Mises Institute have gotten their names. He had very different views from Rothbard, views that are quite closer to my taste, personally speaking, when it comes to when it comes to politics. So why is it that libertarianism leaves open this uh, this space, this window for these really bad views? My understanding from reading Peter Schwartz's essay, again, we're talking about the essay, The Perversion of Liberty in the Voice of Reason, is that Libertarians put politics before morality. So they say, we need freedom to do anything. They don't start with the good thing is to do X and therefore we need freedom. They start with, we need freedom and then anything goes from there. So how do you want to explain it a bit better? So what is the, what is the fundamental issue with libertarianism? Yeah, so you asked, is it a feature or a bug. Um, mm -hmm. And it should have been a bug. Unfortunately, it is a kind of feature and particularly when one's thinking of it as a movement. And I think it's less so a movement today than it was in the 70s and 80s. Part of what Rothbard's trying to do is to be to form a movement and be its spokesman. And I, as we talked about a little bit earlier, I think what should have happened is the better um, people who are being grouped as libertarians and for whom Rothbard's trying to be a spokesman, 
And as you said, uh, which I agree with, like Mises is better than Rothbard, much better in terms of his uh, positions, views, and sort of more, whole moral perspective. I can't imagine him being pro Che Guevara, for instance, and, and, and guerrilla warfare. It's just, you can't um, imagine. It. And that, that's why like, the Mises Institute, so it should be called the Rothbard Institute, not, it, it's, a, it's an insult to Mises, I think, in the end. Um, but what should have happened is that people should have been repudiating Rothbard and distancing themselves. From, and it's like, I want nothing to do with him. And I want to make it crystal clear that he doesn't speak for me in regard to anything. Um, he can po pose as my spokesman, but I'm repudiating him. I view it, Rothbard, it's in part like um, when, when some um, black leader gets up and says, I speak for all blacks. And my view is like, who appointed you as the spokesman for all blacks? You're just trying to co-opt and pretend that you're speaking for everybody. And that's what Rothbard was trying to do. And as Ayn Rand distanced herself from this and was adamant that don't confuse me with this, that's what should have happened. And instead what happened is people embraced Rothbard or tolerated him. And this was, and this is discussed a bit in the Peter Schwartz essay, that what they want is a united front for liberty. It's often now put, what we have is a big tent. So I might disagree with Rothbard, but we're all still on the side of liberty. And part of what we've been talking about is like, if you're pro-Soviet Union, if you're pro-Che Guevara, so you're not on the side of liberty. And you can't have a big tent like that. Otherwise, your big tent includes anybody and everybody who says, look, I'm on the side of liberty. And Marx, for instance, says, I'm pro-freedom, the true freedom, so on. And so is that now we have to view Marx as he's a freedom fighter? And so almost everybody after the Enlightenment and the American Revolution will say, I'm on the side of freedom. But what they mean by freedom is radically different than what was meant in the Enlightenment by it. And so you can't have this kind of big tent. And Rothbard was part of what the whole co-opting of this is what he's trying to do. And to be a spokesman for everybody is to say, and this is what you brought up about the politics and the ethics, is you can have any and every moral view and still be on the side of freedom, which means morality is completely irrelevant to being pro-liberty. And it's such a, I mean, intellectually and philosophically, it's such a stupid position. Um, and that's partly, there's a real anti-intellectuality to um, Rothbard's position, which is part of why he's enamored with the new left, because they are anti-intellectual as well and view it all as about power structures, not about ideas and so on. And so what Rothbard was saying is you don't need any philosophical underpinning, any moral underpinning. You can be pro-liberty, whatever your views. And any real person who has some understanding of liberty should have repudiated that, that like, this has nothing to do with the way that I think about freedom and the foundations of freedom. Yeah, and there's a discussion here to also be had about what are there moral standards? Because if you choose general gap 
over Abraham Lincoln, or if you choose Putin over Zuckerberg because big tech or whatever, it shows that your moral compass is broken. But then, as you said, we remember that these people proudly say that you don't need a moral compass to defend freedom. This is why other libertarians like Walter Block has written the book uh, Defending the Undefensible, Undefendable, something like that, where, where he takes examples of... Uh, people in society who are doing immoral things. And he says, there's nothing which is uh, not compatible here with uh, with libertarianism. And you could make the case that you could do immoral things that should not be illegal, but you shouldn't defend them as, oh, this is morally neutral. So this is, this is where uh, one other area where they quite often get wrong. The fact that something is legal doesn't mean that also it should be it should be moral. Okay, let me acknowledge some uh, super chats. Many thanks, Michael. Many thanks, Gail. Many thanks, Kirk. Many thanks, Shruti. And many thanks. Uh, uh, Michael asked, actually has asked two questions, and I want to take your pick up your brain on this, Onkar. He says, are we more likely to convert libertarians or republicans to objectivism? So this is an activist-oriented question, not a philosophically-oriented question, but isn't it true that the libertarian is closer, let's say, to make that leap towards the philosophy of objectivism than the republican? Is that true? No. and uh, But I don't actually think about it like this. Uh, mm -hmm. Thinking about these as these big groups that you can think, oh, it's more likely that they're libertarian or, or Republican. It's, it's too political, too superficial. As I said, libertarians now, I don't think it's really a movement. It's a whole collection of people and organizations. And some of the people are, they do try to distance themselves, for instance, from this kind of viewpoint that we're discussing now, though, they can't go, typically, they can't go so far as saying, yeah, they're actually anti-freedom. So, the, like, I, I'm completely, like, they won't do what Ayn Rand said. And so, like, I, I want nothing to do with them because they still think, well, in some sense, a big tent, a united front. So I have to personally say I really disagree, but I can't say they're not libertarian, which is a disaster because it, then it suggests, like, any and every viewpoint is pro-freedom if you just say it's pro-freedom. Um but so the way I think about it is we're more likely to convert anybody who genuinely cares about morality. And you can find some among the libertarians, you can find some among Republicans, conservatives, liberals, that they have some real connection to values, to genuine values. And whether it's they genuinely value America, they generally, generally value freedom of thought. They generally, gen, genuinely value capitalist production and think like what happened in the 19th century is, is like almost a miracle of how standards of living rose. And, so, and I want to understand that and make good on that. If they're pro-values, what objectivism is, is to teach you fully what it means to be on the side of the values that advance an individual life and the ideas that are necessary to defend that. And I think that's by far the way that objectivism and Ayn Rand in particular converts people. They get, Ayn Rand is a deep valuer of individual human life, achievement, 
production, rational thought. And that's like, I want to be on the side of that. And let me learn about that. And, and that's how I, that's who I'm trying to reach whenever I'm speaking to people who disagree and they can be in various camps. I, think. I don't know what your experience is, Nico, so talking to these various groups. Well, yeah, there are there are many good people in the wider, let's say, quote, libertarian movement. But again, I will use an, ex an example, and this will be my final word, the example that Peter Schwartz says. He said, imagine there is a conference of doctors, and they also bring some witch doctors or some people who heal with uh, magic or intuition, and they say, hey, we're just a big umbrella of doctors. Except you are not. Because if you put the scientist under the same umbrella as the witch doctor, then this umbrella is worthless. Then anyone who would otherwise appreciate the scientists will see the witch doctor and would say, I don't want to have anything to do with you, with you people. So once more, many, many thanks to the super chatters. Michael, sorry, I can't get to your other question. I can tell you from personal experience, nothing drives Onkar crazy. He's, he's, quite, a, he's quite a calm person, but you are right. Like these things, they drive us angry but we never get to the point of that they drive us uh, crazy so next week we are also discussing something which is related to foreign policy and we're discussing about the 30 the 20th anniversary of the iraq war so 2003-2023 what are the takeaways what are the lessons for future episodes please note that you can suggest a topic you can suggest either a topic that you think we should cover or you can send us questions for the Q&A episodes. Every now and then we have an episode where we answer your philosophical questions. So if you have a topic suggestion or a question, please send it at newideal at einrand.org. Also, let me say thank you. Today we had a lot of people watching live. So how do we make this uh, even bigger? Please, if you took value out of it, share, like, you know, the thing, subscribe to the channel so that also you get notifications. And one final word, we talked about uh, the, the criticism by many prominent objectivists to libertarianism. You can find the core of this criticism in the essay Libertarianism, the perversion of liberty by Peter Schwartz in the voice of reason by Ayn Rand. And also I think there's a, you can check a libertarianism on the Ayn Rand lexicon. You can see what Ayn Rand had to say about the topic in some of your Q and A's. That is all from today. Many thanks to you for watching. Thank you, Onkar, for being with me and see you soon. All the best. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, Leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.